Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, Without any further ado, I bring you this week's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Counter Melody. I'm very excited about this week's topic. 
The first two things that you heard provide a sense of the territory that we will be covering today. The first was a duet from Cavalli's La Calisto. We heard both of these artists that were featured in this in recent episodes, Janet Baker and Ileana Kotrubash. This is a duet in which, well, it's Jupiter. You know, he's always trying to get into some nymph's pants. So he has gotten the brilliant idea of impersonating Diana. Callisto is a follower of Diana and is, in fact, quite in love with her. So when Diana appears to her in the flesh and invites her to partake in a little dalliance there in the shaded grove, Callisto is all too eager to oblige. Little does Callisto know that it's not actually Diana, but Jove in the guise of Diana which, of course, creates quite a bit of confusion. So that's what we just heard. And the other song that I immediately segued to is the song Imagine My Surprise by Holly Near. Holly Near continues to be a vital force in the women's music movement. We'll call it that. It started up in the 70s, and she was one of a triumvirate of very important women Well, there were actually four of them. Meg Christian, Chris Williamson, and Margie Adam were the other three, along with Holly Nia. They were the pathbreakers who created the women's music movement in the 70s and 80s. So we'll be hearing quite a few of those gentle women toward the end of the podcast. Meanwhile, what I love about that song, Imagine My Surprise, is that so many latent lesbians reported having had their consciousness raised in those early days of the lesbian feminist movement through hearing that song and realizing, OMG, to be anachronistic about it, OMG, I think I'm in love with my best friend. We're going to start with two of my favorite mezzo-sopranos of all time, who both happen to be lesbian. One is the Greek-American mezzo-Tatiana Troianos. God, I'll have a lot to say about her. And the other is the iconic and sword-rattling German mezzo-soprano Brigitte Fassbender. I just want you to have a sense of the range of both of these singers that we'll be talking about. So here's Tatiana singing in duet with the marvelous soprano Rary Grist in a brief duet from Alessandro Scarlatti's Endimione e Cintia. I might mention here that Rary Grist and Tatiana Troianos have 
something unusual in common. Rary Grist was the very first singer to sing the song Somewhere. She created the role in the Somewhere Ballet on Broadway. And Tatiana appears as Anita in that, <clears throat> shall we say, ill-fated recording of Bernstein's West Side Story. Miscast across the boards, except for Tatiana as Anita whose performance is incendiary. Now, here's Tatjana singing from Krzysztof Penderecki's opera Die Teufel von Ludin, The Devils of Ludin, in which she created the role of Mother Jeanne in 1969, the same year that that recording with Rary Christ was made. Listen to what she's doing here. She's insane, as is her character. Tatiana Trajanos was a native New Yorker and was raised for a good deal of her childhood as a virtual orphan after her parents divorced when she was very, very young. Brigitte Fassbender had a very different upbringing. Her father was the German baritone Willi Domgraf Fassbender. He was his daughter's, I believe, only voice teacher. Her mother, Sabine Peters was a relatively minor actress in stage and film. Fassbender reports that her first love was not singing, but rather theater. Nevertheless, very early on in her life, she was taken on fest at the Bavarian State Opera in Munich, and there had her first successes. From early in her career, Let's listen to her sing a little bit of operetta. This is Gehen wir in Chambre Séparée from Der Opernball by Heuberger. Her partner in the duet is Nicolai Gedda. Here is the 
And now, from a few years later, is Fassbender singing the role of the Countess Geschwitz in Alban Berg's Lulu. Lulu has just been murdered by Jack the Ripper, and Jack the Ripper, to get Countess Geschwitz out of the way, stabs her as well. Geschwitz has been deeply in love with Lulu from the first time we see her at the beginning of Act Two of the opera, and she has humiliated herself and put her life on the line more than once to save Lulu's life. She's the one figure who is truly dedicated to the enigmatic figure of Lulu, and at the end, she does in fact give her life trying to protect Lulu, but alas, it's too late. And these are her dying words. This performance is from Munich in 1985. It was conducted by none other than Friedrich Czerha, who completed the opera nearly 40 years after Berg's premature death.
we've already heard the range of music that both of these artists could sing. Both were celebrated for their Mozart roles. Both sang Dorabella, both sang Cherubino. I'm not sure that Fassbinder did too much. I mean, her Dorabella was, I would say, her most famous and most important Mozart role. Here she is in a 1978 performance singing the opening duet with none other than one of my favorite singers that I haven't played for you yet, the Welsh soprano Margaret Price, a divine Mozart singer who developed also into a formidable Verdi singer. I think the contrast between the two sisters, I've never heard it more clearly delineated. Brigitte's Dorabella is so impetuous, and Margaret Price's Fiordiligi is much more innig and steadfast.
And now we're going to hear from a couple years prior, Tatiana Troianos singing the role of Sesto in a live performance from Salzburg. She's singing a portion of the aria Parto Parto. You get to hear how this woman could move her enormous voice like the wind. It was one of her greatest assets and it provided the basis for some of her most significant operatic successes. Both of these inimitable lesbians excelled in pants roles. I mean, not to give in to stereotypes, but in both cases, one could see that these women really played into their masculine personas in their portrayals of, most significantly, the role of Octavian in Der Rosenkavalier. We're going to hear both of these singers in excerpts from that opera. Here are Fassbender and none other than last week's featured artist Iliana Kotrubash in a rare outing as Sophie. They are singing the Rosenüberreichung, or the presentation of the rose scene. This is a performance from Naples in 1971, conducted by Georges Prêtre. Oh, 
Octavian was one of Trianos's first international successes. She had spent a couple years at the beginning of her career at City Opera, where she sang roles like Marina Mnishek in Boris Garonov, but she had not yet come into her own. And the Met offered her a contract with insignificant roles, and she chose instead to go to Hamburg, where she was fest for a number of years, and in fact had her first big successes there, including as Mother Jeanne in that performance of The Devils of Loudun that we heard. Another early success of hers was Octavian, which she sang both in Hamburg. Actually, the first time she did that role was at Covent Garden in 1968. She always brought out the more aristocratic side of Octavian. Here in this concert performance from Munich in 1968 or 69, I haven't quite been able to pin down the date, she sings the trio with Gundula Janowitz, one of my my most beloved singers as the Marshallin. It's early enough in her career that Janowitz's high notes are all in tune, and they are partnered by the Sophie of the superb American soprano Arlene Auger at the very beginning of her career.
Sadly, Arlene Auger and Tatiana Troianos both died prematurely in the year 1993, both in their early 50s, both from cancer. It was a horribly tragic year of loss. We also lost Lucia Pop right around the same time, and for those of us who loved great singing, it was a year of insurmountable loss. Brigitte Fassbinder is still with us. She celebrated her 80th birthday, I believe it was last year, could have been the year before. One loses track of time in these days, I'm sure you can uh, relate to that. Here is an unexpected portrayal from Brigitte Fassbinder of Amneris in Aida. This is just a short excerpt of the judgment scene in a 1979 performance from Munich conducted by Riccardo Muti. Fassbinder's voice is a little on the light side for this repertoire. There are certain low phrases that don't quite speak the way that one would like them to, the way that someone like Simeonato, who was recently featured on the podcast, would have done, or even Fedora Barbieri on a good day, or Shirley Verrett and Grace Bumpery, both tremendous Amneris's. Particularly Grace Bumbry, in my opinion. What Fassbender brings to this part is this slash and burn intensity. And that, if you guys haven't already picked up on that, is what both of these artists possess in profusion. This ability to just grab the music and not quite throttle it, but take it on the ride of its life. Listen to the way that Fassbender says, infami, as she's cursing the priests who have just sentenced her former lover Radames to death.
Interestingly, I determined that both Fassbender and Tatiana Troianos, early in their careers, shared the role of Eboli in performances of Don Carlo. Here is Tatiana singing what is the near definitive. Look, if Shirley Verrett had not taken on this role, Tatiana would be the definitive Eboli of all time. Anyone who has seen this clip of when she sings O Don Fatale, the historic Eboli also had an eye patch. And when she's singing with such self-recrimination and self-loathing and tears the eye patch off of her eye and you see the, I mean, it's all makeup, of course, but you see where her other eye used to be. And man, it's so intense. It's so thrilling. I'm just going to offer you a short portion of that. But man, what a dynamo. was my great 
honor to meet Tatiana Trajanos. I was dating someone in 1988, I guess, who was involved in the production of Ariodante at Santa Fe. No, it was actually 87. And that was the year that I was in the Merola program in San Francisco. When I had finished with the program, I went to Santa Fe and I spent, I don't remember if it was a week, something like that, while the person that I was seeing worked on the Ariodante production. And of course, who was in this cast? Well, Nick McGeegan was conducting... Tatiana was the Ariodante, Benita Valente was the Almirina, my friend Janice Hall, who I've interviewed and hope to be presenting her in an interview in the near future, was Dalinda, there were other very important singers as well. It was an event. One evening, this friend that I was seeing had a barbecue and all of those starry icons came over and of all the singers, Tatiana was so kind and solicitous and really engaged me and well I was just 100% in crush I have to say probably a few days later there was a performance of Ariodante scheduled and she was very the thing about Tatiana is that she had enormous stage fright and she was eh, perhaps mm, a bit of a hypochondriac she was always concerned about her health and her vocal health and she was just concerned that she wouldn't be able to sing the performance. So my friend had to go attend to her and make sure that she'd be able to get through the part. It was like nothing I had ever seen before in all my life. Such intensity. Her scherza in fida in the second act. It broke my heart. And it was so beautifully, plangently, intensely sung just a few years prior to that in the Handel bicentennial year. Of course, it was the tricentennial year, but what's a century here or there among friends? They did a number of performances at Carnegie Hall of Handel Operas, and Tatiana sang Ariodante. This performance is from that January 1985 performance. I wish I had time to play the whole thing. You'll get a wonderful sense, though, just by hearing the da capo of the A section.
The other role that I saw Tatiana do, this was before I met her, but she sang the role of Romeo in Bellini's I Capuletti e i Montecchi. And again, it was a peak opera-going experience of my life. She sang opposite the Giulietta of the Italian soprano Cecilia Gazdia, who I think was an extremely important artist who had a very truncated career. I don't know the details of what happened, but I'm going to play a duet from that very production in which I heard the two of them sing in Chicago. And it's a portion of the duet. This part is called A Crudel Donor Ragioni. It's near flawless singing and when the two of them then start singing in the traditional <laughs> bel canto thirds it's such an intense experience euphonious and transcendent
I am going to play just two very short snippets of Tatiana in recital. This was not really her forte, but I do have two excerpts from a 1985 New York recital. This is the song The Island by Sergei Rachmaninoff, and from the same recital, we're going to hear the last song of the Cinq Melodies Populaires Grec, arranged by Maurice Ravel. This is Tout Gay, or All Gay, sort of a tribute to the artists we're hearing today, Wonderfully, Trianos sings this, unusually for these songs, I would say, in Greek. And it gives you a wonderful sense of um, her lustiness. I think it's wonderful what she does here. Oh, <laughs> 
The thing that I offer next, and which I am thrilled to offer you, is Brigitte Fassbender in, I think, what was her most significant artistic contribution, that of leader-singer par excellence. I don't think there's any other singer other than Irmgard Seyfried who is so dedicated completely and utterly to conveying the meaning of the text in the poetry that she sings in these Lieder. So I have chosen four songs to offer you. The first one is Mendelssohn's Neue Liebe. This is a 1980 studio recording with Eric Werber accompanying her. He plays on a lot of her recordings. Thank goodness for us, she did a big, big, big series of leader recordings. First for EMI Electrola, and then for Deutsche Grammophon and also London Decca. So we've got a ton of stuff and we're so much better for it. As I say, this first one is Neue Liebe. It's a poem by Heine. He is observing the fairies. I guess that's appropriate for today's episode as well, although I didn't have that as my primary reason for doing the song. I wanted to show Fassbender's enormously free and almost rhapsodic way with text delivery. So the poet is in the moonlit forest and he sees the fairies riding by in their wagons and the queen of the fairies smiles down at him and he wonders if that is because she can sense the new love that is blooming in his heart or if it's a harbinger of death. The next song is by Schubert. I think that Fassbender's greatest performances are in her Schubert. She had a really pathbreaking and iconoclastic recording of Winterreise in the late 80s that caused a great deal of controversy. I find it 
magnificent. This song is another of those wanderers. This is Der Wanderer an den Mond, and it's a song in which the poet looks up at the moon and muses on how their respective fates are quite different. The moon can wander wherever he wants, from country to country, never has to worry about crossing borders, never has to worry about if he's in his homeland or not, whereas the earthbound wanderer realizes that no matter where he goes, he will never, never be at home. What I love about Fassbender's performance here with Arabert Reimann accompanying her. He, also the distinguished German composer of Lear, among other operas, is that it begins so jauntily, so caustically, so almost sarcastically. And then, as the wanderer looks up at the moon and imagines what it must be like to have such freedom, the tone softens. You hear the longing come in to Fassbender's tone, the softness, the gentleness. And then, at the end, she once again resumes the harder, more casual, more caustic tone. And yet, her character has also been transformed through that communion with nature. It's a profoundly beautiful performance. Lest we think that dear Frau Fassbender does nothing but plumb the depths of even the cheeriest texts, let's look at her performance of Reinen Legendchen from Mahler's 
set of songs from this Knabenwunderhorn. My teacher, John Wussman, is the pianist on this recording, and I think he's Ne Plus Ultra. They worked together in 1986. I was studying with him then. They knew each other socially, and she engaged him because she was having difficulty finding a pianist who would be willing to play these other songs on the album. Wussman really hated those songs, and he said they were monstrous to play. Very difficult, but I believe that the composer was underwriting the recording. <laughs> but they did get to record Berg and Mahler songs together. I think this is a cornerstone of her recorded legacy. something that's a little different. She's singing Kurt Weil here. In 1993, she did a recording of the Sieben Todsünden, the Seven Deadly Sins. To fill out the disc, she recorded a bunch of songs, primarily ones from the collection The Unknown Kurt Weil that Teresa Stratus had recorded for the first time in, I think it was 1980. Now, I love Stratus's versions, but I have to say, Fassbender is so dry, so caustic, so angry that her performance goes to the top of the heap for me. Kurt Weil wrote this song to be broadcast 
beamed by American radio stations into Germany, where the German populace would hear this, a woman saying to a man, I gave you everything I had, and you took it all and more, and what have you given me, and when am I going to have the courage to say, fuck you, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. It's not hard to extrapolate and to imagine the political ramifications of such a statement and probably the way that many, many Germans at that point in the war were feeling very dissatisfied with their Führer. Yeah, I can only imagine that... Some Americans might be feeling that way too. Never mind. I'm not going to go there. Oops, I already did. this point in the middle of the episode, if I had an advertiser, I would be telling you all about that product. My product is this podcast. My product is myself. I'm going on a major campaign for increased listenership, and, if possible, increased support from those of you who listen. You can contribute for as little as $2 a month via my Patreon page. I hope that some of you will be inspired to do that, and those of you who can't, I completely understand. I'm freaking broke too, man. But what I would ask is if you enjoy this, please help me get the word out because I'm giving it my all here and we're all in this together. As I discuss at the end of the episode, I hope that you've been enjoying this journey that we've been taking together and I am so honored to be able to bring you the music and the singers that I love with all my heart. Please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash countermelody and make a monthly contribution of any 
any amount. And let me tell you that that donation will unlock a great deal of bonus material, which I am currently producing. The one that I just put down last week is a second episode on the Romanian soprano Iliana Kotrubash, who we've heard in two numbers already on this episode as well. I cover many aspects of her later career and some unusual roles that perhaps we don't normally associate with her. Anyway, patreon.com slash countermelody. Support me if you can. If not, help me pass the word on to get more and more listeners. Yay! And now back to the episode. So here's my transition to the next section. I've sung Wie lange noch? And I've also sung the next song, Roses, by Janice Ian. Now, Janice Ian never in her early and mid-career, she was never explicit about being a lesbian, but as she herself has said, everybody knew. And in fact, the title of her most famous album is Between the Lines. Now, what do you think that means? Read Between the Lines, people, and you'll see the truth? Maybe. Anyway, this song is called Roses, and it's a very poignant number. I've truncated it slightly, but I think you can get the gist of the song. It's from her 1975 album, Aftertones. She never had too much of money Friendly strangers were all she knew Nobody ever came to call but you Would not say she isn't happy Though the eyes of a fool will make her blue Nobody's ever seen the tears, it's true I guess nobody wanted to And there'll be roses in the springtime still, I guess there will I wish roses and song And she'll be older as years go by and how they fly Will she be lonely? Without me alone She doesn't make friends easily She's only known a few The incidental stranger passing through On Sundays and holidays I'll take a photo Now this next singer is my favorite pop singer of all time. Those of you who know me at all know how much I love Dusty Springfield and how much she has made my life a more livable thing. I'm so grateful to her as so many of her fans are. 
Dusty came out in a, I don't remember the details, it was around 1971 or so, she outed herself as bisexual. Now, whether she was truly bisexual or not, doesn't matter. She certainly was pegged as a lesbian at that point. Suffered for it enormously. But what a pathbreaker. Who else was doing this at that time? Nobody that I can think of. She's a singer we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to. This is from an album she recorded in 1974 that was unreleased at the time. It was supposed to be called Feelings or Longing. I think it had several different names, but it didn't actually get issued until after her death. Not all of the tracks were finished, but the ones that were in releasable form were edited and released. And this song is certainly one of the highlights. It's a song by Margie Adam, who I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, as one of the four who really started the women's music movement. This is a song called Beautiful Soul. It speaks for itself. Here's Dusty singing it. just talking about Margie Adam. She also wrote a song that was covered by Peter, Paul, and Mary called Best Friend or The Unicorn Song. It's probably her most famous. It's a little trite, a little insipid, but also enormously touching. This gives you a sense of sort of how the women's music movement really was 
very mainstream in matters musical. It's also, of course, worth noting that the unicorn has become such an important part of gay iconography. When I was growing up, my best friend was a unicorn. The other smiled at me and called me crazy. But I was not upset by knowing I did not conform. I always thought their singing must be music movement may have been more or less conventional in musical terms, but the topics covered were certainly radical for the time. They remain refreshing and compelling and really wonderful. Now, one of those women was named Chris Williamson, Chris Williamson put out an album called The Changer and the Changed in 1975, and it was revolutionary. One of the songs on her first album, the self-titled Chris Williamson, was one written by her compatriot and colleague Meg Christian. That song is called Joanna, and I offer it to you here. Get down off the ceiling
it down off the ceiling, Joanna. Let's sit and talk for a while. It's been so long since I've seen you, and I. Meg Christian put out an album in 1974. It's called "I Know You Know." I know you know. Guess what she's talking about? My dear not boyfriend David had a copy of this LP. I dubbed it off for him a number of years ago, and it's just so wonderful. This is the quintessential coming out song, at least from that era. It's called "Song to My Mama," and I don't think that any of us. Queer folk have had situations in which we didn't find ourselves having to tell the truth about ourselves, and this is a wonderful example of that. Mama, mama, oh, what do you know about the way your baby child's learning to grow? Are you aware that my woman friends are filling my life with big?
I must thank my dear friend Christina Berger for having given me a lot of input on the music that I'm using in the second part of this episode. She suggested a Canadian singer named Farron, F-E-R-R-O-N. She's very overtly political, and she's also a magnificent wordsmith. Christina was comparing her song lyrics to those of Bob Dylan. Of course, no Nobel Prize for Farron, but this song called It Won't Take Long, I'm just putting a portion of it in there, but it's calling for a revolution. I agree with Christina. Very, very powerful. At noon on one day coming, human strength will fill the streets of every city on our In the harbor, the kings will pull up on their hair, and the banks will shatter to a halt, and the artists will be there. Cause it won't take long, it won't take too long at all, it won't take long. And you may say, I don't think I can be a part of that, and that makes me wanna say, Don't you wanna see yourself that? between the peoples will disappear that honor day and though oceans lie between us lifted candles light the way half will join their hands by moonlight the rest under a rising sun it's underneath the sun and moon our ritual wailing has begun and it won't take long think that we have to pay tribute also to some of the African-American figures in the women's music scene. There's a woman named Deidre McCullough, and she began as a mainstream artist. She put out a release in 1973 when she was aged 19. I believe it was on Roulette Records. But by the mid-1980s, she had become an artist for Olivia Records, which was the consortium that Margie Adam, Chris 
Chris Williamson and Meg Christian had formed. This song is, again, a protest song. This is called Oh the Earth, as in Oh the Earth, She Angry. It's set to a wonderful reggae beat. It reminded me in its affect of a song by another great African-American singer, Tracy Chapman. This was from her album New Beginnings. It's called The Rape of the World. But we played Tracy Chapman, I think it was two weeks ago. So we will instead have Deirdre McCullough, who was one of those singers that I hadn't known before. Christina pointed her out to me, so I'm very grateful to Christina for that. Long ago the earth was something we respected and believed in. Now it looks just like a battlefield that surely been forsaken. We plunged into her veins and burned, but we can burn. singers that I know of is Michelle Ndeje Ocello. In 1996, she put out an album called Peace Beyond Passion. One of the songs on that is called Leviticus Faggot. It's an absolutely relentless song which describes the fate that falls to so many young African-American gay men, abused by the fathers, rejected by their mothers. This one goes out on the street and either through suicide or violence is killed. It ain't no fun, but she pulls no punches. Hey, Before long, he was crying queen for all the world to see. 
see his bloody body face down. All hail the queen. The wages of sin are surely death child. Yes, that's what mama used to say. So there was no sympathy. Certainly one of the most important figures in African-American movement among female singers is Bernice Johnson Regan, who founded the a cappella vocal group Sweet Honey in the Rock. Her daughter, Toshi Regan, is an extraordinary singer and artist. She wrote a song called Terrify Me, and I'm going to play an excerpt from that song from a January 2012 performance live at Joe's Pub. One of the beautiful things about this is that her mother, Bernice, is sitting right next to her, singing along on backup in this song. It's not dissimilar to the song I played two weeks ago by the singer Amethyst Kia called Black Myself. It's a song of rebellion. It's a song of standing up for oneself. And I think it's very powerful. It's a song called Terrify Me. Just in the news everywhere I look. Hey, you come to terrify me. Basing your crimes on the words of the good book. Yeah, you come to terrify me.
Just as we had had Holly Near at the beginning of the episode, I'm going to close with her as well. I watched a marvelous documentary about her the other night. It's called Singing for Our Lives. That's also the title of an anthem that Holly Near composed, which has become kind of a theme song for the queer movement. Holly Near composed this song spontaneously on the way to the protests in San Francisco following the targeted assassination of Harvey Milk. It came from a place of such enormous loss and anger. Who among us in the gay community has not experienced these kinds of feelings? And yet, what are we left with in this song but a feeling of hope and of unity, and of struggling together for a better world. What I like about the version that I'm going to play for you is that Holly Near is singing here in duet with Ronnie Gilbert, that extraordinary singer who was the female member of the group The Weavers that also included Pete Seeger. She came out only very late in her life and lived to marry the woman who had been her partner for many, many years. And she lived her last years openly, joyfully, fully engaged in the struggle. I adore Ronnie Gilbert, and I adore Holly Near, and I'm so grateful for them and for every single artist that we have heard on this episode today. What a debt of gratitude. We should be down on our knees for these women who have made everyone's life better, especially those of us who are queer and who are musicians, but not just us either. All of us, like this song says, we are gay and straight together. We are a gentle, angry My dears, I'll bring you another Gay Pride episode next week. Until then, as always, keep this song in your hearts.
Daniel Guntlach. I'll see you next week.